Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. This is episode 18, recorded live on April 17, 2011. From immigration to intermarriage, the American Jewish experience has changed significantly over time. Rabbi Shalom reviews the history and discusses the new challenges and dynamics for Jewish Americans. This morning I'm going to talk to you about the American Jewish experience, which is covered actually in two of our classes, in the 4th and 5th grade class and also again in the 7th and 8th grade class. And I want to begin by telling you two ironic museum stories. The first one was in 1997, I went to Miami on a a short vacation, and we visited the recently opened Museum of Jewish Miami. (laughs) Now, you think there's a very rich subject, right? A lot of material. Now, the interesting thing was this Museum of Jewish Miami was built in what used to be called affectionately the gangster shul. It was where all the Jewish gangsters who would spend their winters in Miami would go. And so you have you know, the names inscribed of the donor who gave the bench, like Mayor Lansky and <laughs> all these other names. Um, it was very amusing, but it talked about the history of the Jews in Miami and their contributions to Florida culture and so on. But I was also struck when I read a little more about the museum, having visited it, that there was another museum in Miami that was done by Jews that had opened 20 years before, but it was a Holocaust museum. And it occurred to me this is somewhat emblematic of uh, the American Jewish experience. We can come up with a Holocaust museum a lot easier than we come up with an American Jewish identity museum. So you had the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Los Angeles that opened long before the Skirball Museum of American Jewish Culture. Um, and then the other story I was going to get into in some depth is, in 1993, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum opened in Washington, D.C., on the National Mall. Uh, it's framed as a universal lesson in uh, human rights, but clearly there's a Jewish presence, uh, Jewish attention there, Jewish support for the institution. And the irony was, when this museum opened in 1993, there was no museum of slavery, or Museum of the African American Experience of Stillism in Washington, D.C. There's a Martin Luther King Jr. monument that's under construction. It should be done within a year or so. There was no Museum of the Native American Experience, which it didn't open until 2004, another uh, 11 years. But there was a museum for the Holocaust, which is ironic given how limited an American connection there is to the Holocaust. Didn't happen in America. By and large, didn't happen to then-American citizens. Didn't happen in English, wasn't perpetrated by our government. There's plenty of other disconnections there. Uh, but it was, that was the focus, was to create a United States Holocaust Memorial Museum uh, in Washington, D.C. And it wasn't until again, now 18 years later, we finally opened a Museum of American Jewish History in Philadelphia, just over this last year, in the last 12 months. So this, this split of why do we spend this time on the Holocaust, and it's harder to find positive celebration of who we are and what we do, that's over there, this is over here. You know, they used to say that the two major pillars of American Jewish identity were Holocaust and Israel. But neither one of them is here, or happened here, or puts your roots down here in the same way. Uh, And this topic came up when I gave a presentation on the Holocaust at a senior learning center in the area. And I was talking about the future of memory, how are people going to remember this in the future, and uh, a couple of the participants there were very proud of the fact that in Illinois the Holocaust is a mandatory curriculum requirement and that there are people in downstate and who knows where in Illinois who are going to learn something about the Holocaust. Isn't that great? I said, I, I don't mean to you know, um, uh, make a hamburger out of that sacred cow, but I want to ask you, if you were making a list of the most important features of American Jewish history, or of Jewish identity, or of Judaism. For sure, the Holocaust would be in the top ten, probably in the top five. But would you want it to be number one? Would you want it to be the only one? People who've never met a Jew, they're going to learn about the Holocaust. Is that the only thing you want them to know? Well, okay. That's where it gets more complicated. Now, when we turn to choosing what we study out of the American Jewish experience for our, again, 4th and 5th grade and 7th and 8th grade classes, 
we have to decide what are the most important details to focus on. And certainly the World War II experience, whether it was um, mobilizing public opinion uh, to try and nudge Roosevelt, uh, evaluating Roosevelt's perspective and actions during the war, uh, the integration of survivors of the aftermath of the Holocaust, either refugees from Germany in the 30s or uh, from after the, uh, the camps were liberated in the 1940s. Certainly those are part of the story, but there has to be something more to it, both before and, uh, and after. So in terms of uh, just brainstorming, perhaps we could think about what would be the most important elements that you might include in study telling the story of American Judaism. Okay, you could have the famous Jews piece, whether it's um, uh, celebrity or uh, in achievement. Anything else? Well, I think the broader, related to that, I suppose, would be the immigration, emigration, whatever. Yeah. Both. Leaving Russia, coming right, <laughs> and and obviously it happened in different major waves from Germany and Russia happened at different times, but also starting in these really horrendous environments, shuttles and then and then the and then coming to the tenements and then becoming very successful. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's a that's an experience that that not all immigrant groups have. In fact many most don't. Not quite to that degree, I think. Yeah, it depends. It depends. But, I mean, one of the Jews' advantages it was a Interesting book that has a better title than it is a book. The title is How Jews Became White Folk. And it explores the fact that, uh, I mean, initially Jews were like the Irish. They were not that welcome in terms of integrating, but uh, by the time of the, the uh, 1940s, uh, they were seen as white mm -hmm. to some extent. So they were eligible for the GI Bill, whereas African Americans were not in the same way uh, or with as, e as much ease. Uh, Levitt Towns, remember hearing about those suburban developments by Mr. Levitt? They were restricted. No blacks need apply. So uh, yeah, we were in a. Your father was his partner. Your grandfather was his partner. Not for that reason. Not for that reason, but. <laughs> but that's one of those interesting dynamics about how you're, you know, uh, having a visible versus an invisible uh, ethnic identity makes a difference. Um, but certainly, uh, Jewish economic success is an interesting story. Um, I think cultural influence is important. Uh, not just the famous Jews of Hollywood, but uh, the whole idea of the American dream, building that industry, mm -hmm. um, issues on uh, separation of church and state or religion and government. Jews have often had a, a legal role in that. Um, there's a whole history of the Jewish labor movement, uh, where a lot of uh, Jews coming from Eastern Europe came over already somewhat social, uh, socialistically inclined or radicalized, uh, became involved in factory labor and the garment industry and, and other manufacturing. and. Uh, and organize them, um, you know, some would say for good, some would say for bad, depending on your perspective. Uh, but certainly it's an interesting history. And for our purpose, it's even more important because these are some of the first secular Jewish organizations where they're celebrating Jewish culture without theology or Jewish uh, literature and language, primarily Yiddish, uh, without a focus on religious prayer and practice. Um, and part of it was their belief that uh, religion was the opium to the masses, was their socialism. Um, but at the same time, it was their feeling of being ethnically Jewish, being part of the Jewish people, no matter what religion or, or religious institution you went to. Um, and the other dynamic, and this is a prominent one in the American Jewish History Museum in Philadelphia, which I haven't visited yet, but as I understand it, it's that balance between acculturation with the outside world and maintaining a distinct identity. You know, you have the old model of the melting pot, right? Everybody just melts in. In fact, there's a very interesting um, cultural artifact from my childhood, uh, which is a song called The Melting Pot that used to be on Schoolhouse Rock. And uh, it tells the message, doesn't matter where you come from, France, England, Germany, any of those places. <laughs> and I laugh because well, they're all white European <laughs> locations. Um, and uh, they're all, they all came in a certain period of time. Uh, but also the model of the melting pot, some sociologists have felt it's sort of Inadequate because the idea of the melting pot is you get there, you melt, and you're gone. You're just part of this, part of the the family. Well, the model that a lot of sociologists prefer today is what they call the uh, vegetable soup mm. stew. So, well, except in a stew, you see everything contributes to the broth mm -hmm. in some way. Uh, some more than others. Uh, some are very have a lot of sort of integrity, but then they don't contribute as much to the broth. 
the longer you stay in the pot, the more permeable the boundaries get, um, and the mushier your own <laughs> identity becomes. Um, and uh, certain certain vegetables do better than others. You know, a uh, hard carrot will last longer than a soft tomato, and so on. How many generations did it take most ethnic groups to assimilate? Right. Well, look. Here's the question: the Irish, uh, the Irish in America, um, have been here a long time. In many cases, longer than the Jews have. Um, are they assimilated? Yeah, I mean, they are America uh, to a great extent. But they still maintain a sense of who they are and where they come from in many cases. Or in some cases, people have just become, oh, I'm just, you know, white bread American mutt who knows where I'm from. Mm -hmm. um, it just depends on the family background and experience. I think also a lot of it has to do with what you can be proud of in your ancestry, whereas after World War II, nobody even wanted to admit they were German. And or during World War II, couldn't admit they they were German. Well, and even worse during World War One. I. I mean, right. uh, German. Mm -hmm. People yes. forget German was one of the most popular foreign languages in schools until World War One, when they renamed a sauerkraut to victory cabbage, and uh, <laughs> frankfurters were uh, victory sausage or something like that. And because they didn't even want to use German words, uh, and so a lot of people who had been proudly German left it behind. I mean, again, we forget, this is history being, um, you know, hindsight always skews it. Uh, in the Reformed Jewish or German Jewish community, German was a very respected and honored language. They kept the minutes of their board meetings in German in many communities for a long time. The first translation of a prayer book in America was done from Hebrew into German in the, in the 1840s. Um, mm -hmm. And it was one done in the 1850s into English that became more influential ultimately. But, uh, but German was a deeply rooted Jewish language here. Um, and this is, this is the irony because, you know, now you wouldn't, pardon the phrase, you wouldn't be caught dead speaking German in a Jewish setting. So it's a very different dynamic. And I think that um, people with Russian background during the 80s, I mean, I, I knew somebody in school who is, he was um, second generation Russian, and he said he was Jewish because he, it was the 80s, you didn't want to admit being tied to the Soviet Union and communism, and it was, you know, right. it was something. It was easier to say I'm Jewish, as you know, you know, primary identity. Right. And, uh, well, and also there's a. I mean, or, look, there's or a Persian instead of Iranian. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, well, no, I mean, the Jews in uh, in Los Angeles are very much more comfortable calling themselves Persian Jews. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. I, I can remember a story my father related about World War One. His commission was held up because he, his parents were born in Germany, but he was born here, and he had relatives who were in the German army. Interesting. Mm, he Right, right. So, in the story of American Jewish history, we've had a lot of changes, not just in recent times in dealing with this acculturation to an outside society and economic changes. Um, but uh, even the earliest story shows both the tenuousness and the, uh, the importance of having a broader Jewish connection. In 1654, so this is now 350 years ago, a group of 23 Jews arrived in what was then New Amsterdam, um, ultimately became New York, as we know from the song, um, from Recife in Brazil. They had been former so-called Muranos, converts to Catholicism. But when the Dutch took over uh, Recife in Brazil, they were able to come out of the closet, so to speak, as secret Jews. The problem was that the Portuguese then reconquered Recife, and now they were really on the hook because they had admitted they were lying the first time. And so they were perfect targets for the Inquisition and expropriation and everything else. So they fled, and they went to another Dutch colony, which time was uh, New Amsterdam. When they arrived, uh, the governor of the colony, whose name was Peter Stuyvesant before he was high school, um, wrote back to the Dutch East India Company to ask them, what do I do with these people? I want to kick them out. It turns out that some of the major stockholders in the Dutch East India Company were Jewish. And they told him, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, they said, uh, let them stay. Um, 
What do you think was the first thing the community uh, acquired as a community? Cemetery. That's right. Often when Jews would move into new areas, one of the first things they would buy would be a cemetery. Now, if you were being non-charitable, you'd say it's because they want to segregate themselves. They want to be buried next to, next to other people. Uh, <laughs> but you might also say that it's a sense of facing the reality of life. People die. And you're going to need this uh, function as a community. It's the kind of thing individuals don't necessarily handle for themselves. And the third reason is that historically their experience was European where their Jewish identity was a collective identity. It was not individual citizens. Now Spinoza may be the first individual citizen who is neither Jewish nor Christian, because before then you had to pick one or the other. So if you were Jewish and you needed to get buried, you needed a place. Uh, one example of this is uh, Ludwig Zamenhof, who invented the language Esperanto. He was of Jewish background was very much a universalist. He even refused to join the Jewish chapter of Esperanto speakers because he didn't want to, you know, be too particularistic. But guess where he's buried? In Warsaw? In the Jewish cemetery. Because that's, that's where you are, no matter what you want. So this group from Recife are Sephardic Jews uh, by origin. In fact, the uh, dominant population in the United States is Sephardic until uh, the late colonial period, uh, shortly before the revolution. Uh, they tend to have names like Lopez and Garcia. We sort of don't think of those as uh, Jewish names, but they are Jewish names in this period. Um, and uh, they assimilate to American culture, uh, so much so that uh, after about 100 years of uh, colonial period, um, they are no longer the majority of American Jews. The combination of immigration from Eastern Europe you know, leads, leads to Ashkenazi Jews becoming the majority, and uh, the Sephardic Jews tend not to reproduce or maintain a distinct identity. Again, this vegetable soup model uh, comes into play. They tend to settle in major port cities because that's the basis of the economy, whether it's Charleston or Savannah, Boston or Newport, Rhode Island. In fact, the oldest uh, synagogues that are still standing, uh, they are the oldest one is in Newport, Rhode Island. Second oldest is in New York. Third oldest is in, I believe, Savannah. And the fourth is in Charleston. They wouldn't have thought, again, you wouldn't think of Savannah and Charleston as poor Jewish cities, but in this period where, again, the country is the coast, <laughs> um, so Washington was the middle at the time, um, they, uh, they were attractive places for people to settle uh, because of the commerce they were involved in. But we have to remember that the Jewish population of the colonies is teeny, teeny tiny. By 1840, estimates are there were about 15,000 Jews. So that is way smaller than 1%, maybe one-tenth of 1%, I mean, a really, really small proportion of the colonies. Slightly more represented in cities than in countrysides. There tended to be fewer, you know, Jewish homesteaders who were going to go out and create a farm, and not just because of current stereotypes about Jews and manual labor, uh, but uh, primarily because, again, if you're a religious Jew, you need 10 other Jews, or 9 other Jews, who are men, uh, to pray regularly, and you can't go out in the middle of nowhere if you're a devout uh, practitioner. Interestingly enough, this period also sees the beginnings of change in Jewish life, what we call reform, even if it wasn't self-identified as change. Uh, beginning in the early 1800s, you have mixed seating, men and women sitting together. You have a uh, mixed-gender choir singing as services, even the pipe organ begins to appear, because again, it's what the neighbors are doing. They have services where people sit in rows and listen. Very foreign to the Jewish experience sitting in rows, listening quietly, uh, singing in unison. It's all very foreign. You go to an Orthodox synagogue and you'll see it's sort of anarchy, but that is tradition. That is the Jewish tradition of, uh, of the service. Um, now, beginning in the 1840s, you get a second wave that begins to take over. And again, we'll see this pattern, as Sean mentioned, of waves flooding over the previous uh, inhabitants. So you have the Sephardic Immigration, you had this new Ashkenazi wave from Eastern Europe. Now, beginning in the 1840s, there's a huge mass of Jews from Central Europe. These are the German Jews, so-called. Not because they're all from Germany. Some are from Hungary, some are from Czechoslovakia, uh, but they are, uh, or the Austro-Hungarian Empire, but they're coming speaking German, largely as a language of culture. <laughs> and they are interested in these ideas of reform. Many of them come after the revolutions of 1848 in Europe, uh, either as refugees or looking for opportunities. They tend to settle further west uh, in the Midwest, um, as well as some of the East Coast cities, uh, certainly New York, Philadelphia, and so on, gets their contingent. 
Uh, but there are also large German Jewish communities in Detroit, in St. Louis, in Cincinnati, in Pittsburgh. And again, now you wonder, why, how did so many Jews show up in Cincinnati? Uh, in fact, we, uh, we were just at the uh, National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. And there's a whole exhibit on the Jews of Cincinnati. And I heard like three or four different people walking by the exhibit saying, I didn't know there were lots of Jews in Cincinnati. <laughs> Uh, but it goes back to that German-Jewish immigration, which, by the way, followed where the Germans went, too. Because large numbers of Germans, or German-speaking people from Central Europe, were immigrating at the same time. And they landed in similar cities because the rivers were the major route of uh, transportation and communication. You know, this is the, the irony in American life is we always latch on to the latest fad. So in the 1830s and 40s, people were convinced that canals and the rivers were going to be the future of freight transportation. So they built these whole huge series of canals. You can get from canals all the way from the Great Lakes down to the um, Ohio River at the bottom of uh, Ohio, and, uh, and then from there get into the Mississippi and who knows what. Of course, 50 years later, the railroad uh, became uh, much more dominant. Um, but uh, at the time, these were the places to settle, so people settled there, um, in particular the Jews. Uh, even Chicago as well got its uh, strong community of uh, American German Jews. Now, they would sometimes describe themselves as Americans of the Mosaic faith. They were very much feeling like they were not ethnically Jewish as much as they were nationally American, and their Judaism was a religious identity. Um, the, the famous line from a poem was that you should be a man on the street and a Jew in your tent. Judaism was a private identity. You didn't have to wear it on your sleeve, again, pardon the reference. Um, you didn't have to uh, live in Jewish neighborhoods necessarily, follow Jewish dietary laws, wear distinctive Jewish clothing or hairstyles or facial hair and so on. You could be an American like anybody else. So as I mentioned, this very influential translation of the prayer book, something called Minhag America, that was the name of it, the Custom of America. They included the Star-Spangled Banner, in the prayer book. Hmm. They would say things like, this is our Jerusalem. We don't need another Jerusalem. They would create religious institutions that they would call temples on purpose. Because originally you wouldn't call it a temple. There was one temple. It was the temple of Jerusalem that you're waiting to be rebuilt. If you have a traditional Haggadah, it says, Yivdei Beito Bekara, may his house be rebuilt soon in our days, speedily. You want the sacrifices to be offered at the temple of Jerusalem. Well, for the re these reformers, they didn't want the accusation of having dual loyalty, but even more important, they felt like, this is the promised land. This is our Jerusalem. So why am I not calling it a temple? It should be a temple. So in many cities, not universally, but in many cities, if you see temple blah, 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 that's reform, sort of the older ones, and congregation so-and-so, or kikilah, synagogue so-and-so, that tends to be conservative. Mm -hmm. um, but that pattern followed this reform uh, movement in the 1840s to 1880s. And again, you have hundreds of thousands coming uh, from that 15,000 American Jews in 1840. By 1880, you have 250,000 Jews. So it's double over 100 times. Um, uh, it multiplied over 100 times. Uh, and again, largely these German-speaking uh, reformed Jews. Now, they had become so assimilated at the time and there were still more religious Jews uh, than the Reformed Jews. But when the first American Jewish uh, seminary was created, uh, by the way, they didn't like the word Jew necessarily in that period because uh, it was seen as sort of a slur. It's like um, in Russian, if you say Zhid, that's the slur, but Evreski, Hebrew, is the more uh, prestigious term. Um, you have the Union of American Hebrew Congregations, which is now called the Union for Reformed Judaism, but back then it was. Hebrew congregations. Um, you have the Central Conference of American Rabbis, which is a rabbinic association, and you have a school, Hebrew Union College, based in Cincinnati, where one of the leaders of the reform movement was. Their first graduation was in 1883. They invited leaders from Jewish community all over the country. And there's some debate over whether it was intentional or just inadvertent, but they served shrimp at the reception. Now, it might be the case that it was intentional. Their point was to say, we don't follow these dietary laws, so who cares? My guess is it was just inadvertent. It didn't, didn't even occur to them to check with the caterer to make sure that uh, that wasn't on the menu. But who knows? In any case, it led to a split because there were those uh, Jews who were uh, more traditionally inclined 
either from Germany or now beginning from Eastern Europe, who felt this was just one step too far. And so a couple of years later, they founded their own seminary to train rabbis called the Jewish Theological Seminary, which became the Conservative Movement's Seminary. But even that was languishing in mediocrity for a long time, until the early 1900s. What happened then was a function of this new wave of immigration, beginning in the 1880s, continuing through the early 1920s, of the Eastern European Jews, Yiddish-speaking Jews. Now, were there more German Jews that came at this time? Sure. But by and large, the large number of people coming were Eastern European Jews. Something like 2 million of them came. So again, from 250,000, now you've got 2 million new people coming in. But what's different about them from these assimilated Reformed Jews? Well, they don't speak English. They speak Yiddish. They feel very ethnic in their sense of Jewish identity. The ones that are religious tend to be much more traditionally religious, i.e. Orthodox. Um, and they're immigrants. They're unwashed. They're not uh, acculturated to elevated society and uh, cleanliness and hygiene and everything else. So you get organizations like the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, again you see the word Hebrew in the title, um, that was designed to help these new Jewish immigrants become Americanized. They offered evening classes in cooking, how to cook like an American uh, Jew. And in uh, decorum and behavior and hygiene and all these other hmm. uh, seemingly essential tools. Um, sometimes literacy, yes, but often these sort of culturizing, uh, it's kind of like the, the white man's burden model. You know, we, we have to make sure our, our brethren are, are co-religionists, they would call them, which is ironic because if you're a Reformed Jew, what you're doing is not very much like Orthodox Judaism. and certainly isn't much like the socialist secular Jewish identity that these labor union activists are participating in, but they're your co-religionists, because you've defined Judaism as religion, therefore they're your co-religionists. Um, but what really happened is the, one of the great ironies of Jewish history. There are all these affluent German Reformed Jews, and there are affluent temples. Uh, temple Emmanuel in New York was one of the major uh, ones. And they didn't want these Yiddish-speaking immigrants showing up in their nice affluent temples, and they felt it was too Americanized, they, would, they wouldn't accept it anyways. And so a number of very prominent and very affluent Reformed Jews, um, who had, had success in the banking industry or in other industries, um, gave a lot of money to the Jewish Theological Seminary to support the development of a conservative Judaism. It was ironic, Reformed Jews are supporting the development of a conservative Judaism to keep the Eastern European Jews out of their synagogues, but also to Americanize them. So now, they'll have a rabbi who can give a sermon in English. They'll change a little bit. It'll move in the right direction. And, ultimately, uh, the hope was that in a generation or two, they would be civilized enough to move into uh, reformed temples. Now, you know, for the, the, all the patronizing that that tone has in it, it's actually come to pass demographically, because the conservative movement 30 years ago was the largest organized movement, and now the reform movement is larger, and a lot of people who had been conservative are now reformed. They've sort of moved in that uh, trajectory. Uh, if these trends continue, it's good for us. <laughs> Just keep moving. <laughs> um, now, the other interesting change that took place in the American Jewish experience in this period was that you really do begin to get the sense of a Jewish people, of this ethnic identity, whether it's these uh, Jews living in the uh, so-called ghettos, of the Lower East Side of Manhattan or Maxwell Street in Chicago, you know, very densely Jewish uh, ethnic experiences. Um, but they also are articulating their sense of being Jewish as a kind of ethnic identity. Um, it's who they are, not as much what they believe. Uh, and so we have a lot of affinities to draw from that experience. Um, the challenge is, when we talk about this immigration period, uh, or the immigration experience for Jews, we often focus on that 1880 to 1920 because that's when a lot of our grandparents or great-grandparents came. But the challenge is, in the, in the 40 years that we've been doing humanistic Judaism, teaching, teaching that issue has changed. When you were teaching about the American Jewish experience in 1972, many people's grandparents had been immigrants. In some cases, their parents, if they were Holocaust survivors, had been immigrants. In my experience, growing up in a humanistic synagogue in the 80s and 90s, my grandmother was born in this country. My great-grandparents were the immigrants, and I never knew them. So it really changes the dynamic of what you're talking about. It's not as immediate anymore. People will tell jokes that um, 
They used to think that when you got older, you got an accent. <laughs> it's part of aging. Uh, because everyone they knew that was older uh, spoke with an accent, and uh, that was their experience. Well, that isn't the case anymore. If you talk to goal. the... What? That's my goal. Acquire. You want to acquire the accent. We know you. I know you well. Well, you know, there's this website, Old Jews Telling Jokes, right? Uh, you can find it online. Uh, but they're not... They're not doing it with the Yiddish accent. They might have some of the inflections up and down, but it's not the same as if it would have been 30 years ago or 40 years. So the whole dynamic of teaching the immigration experience is a lot more remote. Um, you know, it begins to feel more like the colonial period. Um, my joke is that uh, history is anything that happened before you were paying attention. So uh, for, for kids today, uh, Iran-Contra, that is. That might as well be the War of 1812. I mean, it's... Before now, so it's in the history category. So the immigration experience, short of the Russian Jewish experience, uh, or the experience of many Israelis who've come to this country, or Jews from other parts of the world who've come, in smaller numbers, uh, it's not the dominant narrative of their lived experience. It's how they got here. But it's not what as vibrant or as important as it used to be. So you talk about the tenements. I mean, we did a lot of stuff on tenements historically. You, you set up a, a room that's like 10 by 10, and you mm -hmm. put eight kids in there and not try and go to sleep. But, you know, what was it like in the... I mean, again, it's, it's a very foreign experience to their uh, lived uh, family history. Now, in the 1930s and 40s, you have another wave of approximately um, 300,000, uh, 400,000 Jews. Uh, by 1939, about 100,000 had come from um, Eastern Europe uh, and, more importantly, from Germany and Austria and the Czech Republic as refugees from Hitler. Uh, but that immigration flood stopped in 1924. Uh, first in 1919, there were a series of immigration restrictions that were passed, and then in 1924, they passed an even larger series of immigration restrictions. And what they did for the American Jewish community was it sort of cut off that flow of new Yiddish speakers, new ethnic Jews. So it created kind of a bubble experience where you're not being influenced from outside people coming in as much. There were about 100,000 Jews that came in by the end of the 1930s from Germany. And then again, after the war, approximately 250,000 came in uh, as refugees from uh, Hitler or Stalin for that matter. Uh, but by and large, the American Jewish community wasn't one of immigration in the 50s and 60s. It was one of integration. Um, and also success. So if you had Jews working in the labor movement in the 1920s, their kids didn't get jobs in factories. Their ambition was for their kids to become accountants, become pharmacists, um, become doctors, or, you know, the joke, my, Jew, my, my son the doctor, my son the lawyer. Well, it uh, had its basis in ambition. Uh, and so that mother might have been a garment worker herself in the 10s and 20s, but her children, she didn't want to work in the factories that she had herself improved with the of labor conditions. Um, and so in the 50s and 60s, Jews become more successful economically, not all of them, but uh, substantially. Mm -hmm. And secondly, they become part of the American fabric. There's a, a sociological book that comes out called Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. We are seen as one of the major religious groupings. You move into the suburbs. And what do you do when you go into the suburbs? You join a synagogue, which is ironic because Jews didn't used to join synagogues in great numbers in the cities because they felt Jewish by environment. But now that they're living in their freestanding house, and they're not in the dense Jewish neighborhoods they used to have, um, they are much more inclined to joining something uh, as a symbol of their identity that's in public. It's a big, beautiful building. It's visible on the street. You have, uh, this is where you hang out your shingle. And it's uh, respectable compared to what your neighbors are doing. Um, the irony is that, again, what are the major symbols of Jewish identity in this period, in the 50s and 60s? It's Holocaust, beginning of the 1960s after the Eichmann trial, and uh, support for the state of Israel. Um, and the irony is that uh, Jews supporting Israel from America generally had no intention of moving there. They supported its existence, they were proud of its achievements, they took vicarious pleasure in the um, uh, uh, successes of the military and the and, uh, uh, economic and agricultural development, and they did raise lots of money to support the state. Um, a sort of revision of tzedakah, you used to collect money in a little blue box for scholars in Israel, now you collect it for the Jewish National Fund to buy trees. Um, again, what does it mean to buy trees in a country where you're not living? It's putting down your roots, but somewhere else. Um, and uh, 
So that became a primary symbol. Uh, but even more importantly, uh, for many Jews, it was a sense of uh, liberal identity. Uh, they were in favor of, again, separation of church and state. Uh, they tended to be on the left in terms of politics. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt had uh, made it respectable to vote for the Democratic Party, which is ironic because uh, many German Jews have been Republicans in the uh, 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, uh, because, again, they were the urban parties. And what, what was happening in the urban areas in the Democratic Party? It was, you know, Tammany Hall. It was corrupt. Um, and in the South, it was the party of segregation and Jim Crow. So um, it wasn't until Roosevelt really that Jews began to move to the Democratic Party. And the other reason was all those Jews who had been socialistically inclined, which, again, wasn't a majority of Jews, but was a substantial number, had moved over into the, uh, the Democratic Party, and that was accelerated in the 1950s with the Red Scare McCarthy era and the Rosenberg trial, where it became even more scary to identify as socialist and red, so your cover was, or your attraction was, or the more palatable version was uh, to be in a, uh, a liberal setting, but not a socialist one. Um, now, beginning in the 1970s, you get a new wave of immigration. And we still have not seen exactly what changes that's going to produce. In the 1970s, you begin to get uh, a number of Russian Jews immigrating. There's a small opening window uh, in the 70s, and then the floodgates open in the 1990s. Um, they begin to settle primarily in New York, but also in many other parts of the country. Uh, you know, Brighton Beach becomes infamous for their connections. Um, they are given preferential immigration treatment. Uh, it's sort of a default assumption of persecution. You could say, I'm a Jew from Soviet Union. You didn't have to prove you were persecuted for asylum. You could just get in. Um, and that was, uh, I remember even, uh, even in the late 90s, filling out some uh, asylum applications for, um, for uh, asylum seekers using that uh, immigration status when I was working at an immigration attorney's office. Um, the other major immigration of Jews came from Israel itself, which is problematic from the Zionist perspective, which believed that everyone should be moving to Israel. And now there's always people born in Israel who are now living outside of Israel. Some of them are academics who get jobs at universities. In fact, um, the current prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, spent his high school years in America because his father was a professor. And he was uh, teaching at a university out here, uh, I believe in Boston or Philadelphia. And then he went to MIT for his uh, studies. So. Uh, there was a, a large number of Jews who uh, came from Israel, but who have moved here. Um, the assumption is that between these Russian Jews and these Israeli Jews, something like six to 800,000 Jews uh, have come in. Uh, about half of them wound up in the New York area, and the rest of them wound up in Los Angeles, in particular the Persian Jews from Iran tended to move to Los Angeles in great numbers, um, but also Chicago, Boston, San Francisco, and Philadelphia. Now, the dilemma is when you're facing American Jewish life, it's like the story of the man with the small house, where the rabbi tells him to take his cow in the house, and then take his chickens in the house, and then take the horse in the house, and then he has to take all the animals out, and the house feels so much more spacious and open. Um, is this uh, half full or half empty, the American Jewish experience? Is it a complaint about how we keep adding hundreds of thousands of Jews and we're still treading water demographically, or are we counting them wrong? Uh, has the American Jewish response to this question of separation and integration been a successful one or been a counterproductive one? Um, you know, the joke about what happens when a man brings home uh, a non-Jewish woman to meet his mother. Uh, he introduces his mother to this wonderful, nice non-Jewish woman whose name is Running Deer. She's Native American. And the mother says, nice to meet you. I'm sitting Shiva. <laughs> In other words, you're dead to me. <laughs> Uh, and that model, um, you know, it's sort of an old country model. You can imagine the Fiddler on the Roof scene, you know, where he's feeling like his daughter is gone. Um, but interestingly enough, that movie, made in the 1970s, I believe, um, changes the end of that story. The end of that story, in the original version by Shoal Malachem, she converts to something else, marries the outsider, and that's it. Gone done. Um, and he says, you know, let's talk about something more pleasant, like the cholera epidemic in Odessa. <laughs> in the Hollywood movie version, he opens the door at the end. They're still talking a little bit. He still shows some concern for her. Well, that's very different. Same thing with the jazz singer. 
Remember, it's the battle between the old and the new. He has this beautiful blonde, not Jewish girlfriend, but his mama wants him to sing the Kol Nidre, and how can he open on Broadway when he has to sing the Kol Nidre? And guess what happens at the end? He does both. <coughs> Sings Kol Nidre and then goes to play uh, on stage, and he, uh, his mom and his girlfriend are sitting in the audience together for his big debut. Of course, he puts on blackface, and it's a whole other dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> it's going on at the end of that film. Um, you know, is, that how, is that how Jews integrate, by putting on a, a mask? Well, interesting. Um, but uh, that's that, you know, you can have it all, and there's no, you don't have to choose. Well, that's a much more open and uh, positive approach than the, you know, cut it off and, and say goodbye response. Uh, there was a survey done by the American Jewish Committee about 10 years ago where they asked people what, your, what their attitudes were on intermarriage. And the vast majority of lay Jews said, this is an inevitable part of an open society. I want my rabbi to officiate at this kind of a ceremony. Um, they should be open and welcoming, uh, even if the couple hasn't promised to raise the kids to do it. But that isn't what the professional Jewish community does. You know, the rabbis who will officiate at intermarriages are a minority, right? even a small minority. I get plenty of stories where people say, you know, the rabbi I grew up with told me to get lost. And they find me, and I'm happy to say congratulations and welcome them. But, um... Then they'll welcome them back. What? Then they will welcome them back. They might welcome them back as members now. Right. Um, they'll pay the dues. Yeah, well, see, I, I, that I don't understand. Why, <laughs> why you'd stick around in a place that wouldn't marry you, but they'll, they'll let you join later on. Everybody makes their own compromise. Mm -hmm. Um... But these, this dynamic of separation and integration shows up in a lot of ways, not just the intermarriage question. Are we still comfortable calling ourselves the chosen people? Because, you know, there's, there's something chutzpahdic, chauvinist, about claiming that, well, every people is distinct, but we're better. Well, then you get people who are trying to redefine that to say, well, well these were chosen for special obligations, or we're... Uh, that were chosen for these commandments, or you wouldn't want to be us because it's so hard to be Jews. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's all apologies for feeling special. Mm -hmm. um, it reminds me of a great short story by Philip Roth called The Conversion of the Jews. At the beginning of the story, um, this uh, kid gets, he keeps getting sent to the rabbi's office. Um, and one of the first times it happens was there was a plane crash. And his mother went through the list of the names of all those who had died in the crash and marked all the ones that were Jewish to count those. And the kid says, I wish they were all Jewish. Well, does that mean he wanted more Jews to die? Well, really what he wanted was her to pay as much attention to everybody. <laughs> You know, not be as, uh, I mean, we, this happens all the time. You know, 30 people killed in a ferry accident, one American. Right? You hear that all the time. Um, the closer it is, the more recognition it gets. It, if it's a ferry accident and there's 10 Americans, they'll talk about the 10 Americans. But if there's one Chicagoan, they're going to talk about the one Chicagoan, not, not even worry about the 10 Americans or the other nine Americans. It, it's Yes. So, I mean, that's, that's inevitable. That's what human beings do. Um, but at the same time, uh, writ larger, how do you approach this idea philosophically? So uh, some movements have kept it and just don't talk a lot about it. Um, some movements have cut out that language and that concept from what they do uh, as just unable, just can't save it from itself. Um, but it's definitely a challenge. Um, the whole phenomenon of day schools, which uh, before the last 30 years was not really prominent in the liberal Jewish world. People in conservative, even reform uh, synagogues, tended to go to, to public schools. My father, who was raised in an Orthodox community, went to the public school and then went to a school after school for a couple of hours a day, mm -hmm. um, which wasn't unusual in the, in the 30s and 40s when he was growing up. Uh, so the idea of separate day schools, again, is a response to this dynamic of how separate should we be, how integrated should we be. In some communities, there's only uh, day schools up to eighth grade, then they go to general high school, and then there's a Chicago and Jewish school to maintain that separation uh, a little bit longer. Um, and some are community-wide schools that try to say we, we welcome every denomination, well, up to, you know, within a limited window, um, and others are denomination-specific. Um, interestingly enough, the, the largest reform day school, there are reform day schools, is in Los Angeles, because the public schools stink. So, 
So they created their own day school, not out of an ideology of segregation or separation, but because they, they wanted an alternative, and uh, this, this made the most sense. Now, another dynamic we have to deal with in America is the uh, issue of the state of Israel. Because on one hand, we feel an ethnic connection to the people who are there. Many people have family who live there, or people who know who have family that are there. But the relationship between a Jewish state and a diaspora of Jews has always been somewhat problematic. Uh, there was a deal that was made in the 1940s with David Ben-Gurion um, that Israel wouldn't tell diaspora Jews what to do. Because that could raise that specter of dual loyalty or uh, you know, being a, an agent of a foreign power. Um, but at the same time, um, diaspora Jews have sometimes tried to influence what's going on in Israel. And you get arguments on both sides. So at one time, when the um, diaspora Jewish community was more pro-peace or liberal than the uh, Israeli government was, uh, Israelis would say, well, you don't live here, so you can't say anything. But a couple decades later, when the um, Israeli government was more willing to make concessions on Jerusalem and other areas than um, the uh, American Jewish community was, then all of a sudden the right wing of Israeli politics said, well, all Jews should have a say in what happens in Jerusalem, so stick your nose in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the dynamic changes based on the issue. But there was a, a piece that was written eight months ago uh, that raised the question of whether the future generations of American Jews are going to feel attached to a Jewish state. Because they always assumed, and their parents always assumed, that their personal political liberalism and their support for a Jewish state could easily, harmoniously coexist. Certainly when Israel was run by the Labor Party and was sort of a socialist-oriented society, being a left-wing Democrat, I mean, it, it was a very easy fit. The challenge has come with uh, the the treatment of what's, uh, what's sometimes called the occupied territories of the West Bank, um, and also some of the dynamics of religion and government that are going on in Israel with uh, trying to impose more orthodox standard in the public square, uh, whether it's at the Western Wall or even on buses in Jerusalem now where they're putting in segregation between men and women on the bus. Um, it really has created a kind of uh, disconnect. And while some have assumed that, Jew that American Jews would identify with the Israel more than the liberalism, in some cases, going the other way around. They're disconnected from Israel, or they're, they're emotionally uh, divesting from uh, feeling connected to it instead of feeling actively involved. And in the end, there is a paradox. And the paradox is, we are very opposed to an ethnic democracy in this country. You know, an ethnic democracy would be one where you favor a particular ethnic group. Now, we used to have that here. It was called WASP, right? All the presidents, all the teachers, uh, business leaders, uh, that were in public, uh, opinion leaders and so on, tended to be wasps. But that changed over the last hundred years. Now, is it a multicultural paradise? Are uh, population trends reflected exactly in Congress the way they are in demographics? No. But, after all, if that were the case, there'd be a lot fewer Jews in Congress. Because we have 13 senators mm -hmm. for 2% of the population. So we're overrepresented in some ways. But that's the kind of meritocracy we'd love to see. It doesn't matter what your ethnic group is. You can uh, rise based on talent. That's the theory. The challenge is Israel, not unique in the world, is an ethnic democracy. It's a democracy focused on a particular ethnic group, not just a universal commitment to human rights and, uh, and rights of citizens. Uh, so you get preferential treatment if you immigrate as a Jew to the land of Israel. Uh, the, there are three official national languages, English, Hebrew, and Arabic, but they are very clearly prioritized, such that Hebrew 1, English 2, and Arabic 6. <laughs> a long way down the list. Uh, unless you live in an Arabic village or in the uh, Israeli Arab communities, uh, but generally um, it's not as emphasized in the Jewish curriculum in Jewish schools. Um, and it's also a somewhat segregated experience, so even if the state is 80% Jews and 20% Arabs, in your daily experience as an American Jewish tourist or as an Israeli Jew, your experience is 90% Jews, or even more, depending on what industry you're in and so on. So um, the whole idea of a Jewish state, an ethnic state, to us in America feels foreign and even problematic. How can you really be democratic if you're 
prioritizing that. On the other hand, you couldn't have a Jewish star on the flag. And if we had a cross on the flag, we'd feel very alienated. On the other hand, is it that unreasonable to be one Jewish state out of all the states in all the world? Well, you know, everyone else has one. Just about. Now, another dynamic in America that we're facing is what's called the return to, return to tradition. The belief that uh, liberal American Jews have decided to give up their facade of a very thin surface Jewish identity and go back for the real thing. They're becoming more orthodox, they're keeping kosher more, they're following tradition more. Well, the reality is that it goes in both directions. So in recent surveys of people who were raised orthodox, it turns out that about half of the people who were raised orthodox don't stay orthodox. They identify as something else, whether it's conservative or reform or just Jewish or whatever. So the Orthodox community tends to have a higher birth rate than the general Jewish community, but they're not maintaining it. <laughs> they're not maintaining that population the same way. Um, and there are a lot of people who have left Reform Judaism, but sometimes they've gone into the just Jewish category, not only into the traditional category. Now, why is the more traditional piece more visible? Because they dress differently. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they eat differently. It, it, it's much more visible. Somebody becomes more secularized. They become, in some ways, more invisible, more part of the American landscape. Um, actually, Brandeis University recently released a study. The number one de uh, denomination <coughs> grow over the last 10 years was just Jewish. Because Orthodox went from like 10% to 9%. And Conservative went from 70% to 13%. And Reform went from 16% to 15%. And just Jewish went from 30% to... 50%, or something huge. Now, just Jewish doesn't automatically mean secular or humanistic. They could be simply freelance. They don't want an identity. They like a conservative Haggadah, but the Reform High Holidays, or they, they pick and choose. Um, but the, uh, the short version is that our model of what it meant to be Jewish, joining this kind of a synagogue uh, as your label um, that was dominant in the 50s and 60s may not be the case in the future. Uh, one of our Either current or future podcast is a talk I gave recently on the future of the synagogue. It just came up. It was just up yesterday. Um, and uh, in that discussion, I, I talked a little bit about what's going to happen down the line. I mean, is the model of a country club where you have to pay for membership going to be the most successful in reaching out to an audience that used to the internet where you barely have to pay for anything? I mean, you've heard the hue and cry about the New York Times mm -hmm. daring, mm -hmm. daring to charge for access to their content. How mm -hmm. dare they? Well, they gotta, they're in business, right? They, they need some kind of revenue stream, and the ads that we all ignore are not generating the revenue that they need. Um, so this is, a, this is a challenging dynamic of how to make Jewish identity work in a decentralized, um, anti-monopolistic, do-it-yourself model. Uh, and can you have an organized Jewish community? Do rabbis have to go out and get real jobs? And then this is like a hobby on the side. Um, what does that mean for rabbinic training? Uh, I mean, there are a lot of rabbinical schools out there now uh, who are less reputable even than our own, um, who are, you know, you want a rabbi title? Stamp and get it. Just like uh, you can become a minister in the Universal Life Church for 25 bucks online. Um, you can legally do weddings that way. In fact, I know someone that ordained their cat. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, then it's worth what you paid for it. But if the goal is just to find people with the title versus the training, that's, a, it's a, again, a different model for what the community has been historically and could be in the future. So I do think that looking at the future of American Judaism, we have a lot of advantages. We take a very honest approach regarding tradition. We always say it's a balancing act between your Jewish identity and your general cultural identity. I'm Jewish. I'm also white, I'm also male, I'm also an alumnus of the University of Michigan. There are times that that last status is more important. On Saturday morning, I'm going to turn on the TV to watch the game as opposed to not turning on the lights, right? Um, but uh, there are other times when the Jewish identity takes precedence at the high holidays or Passover. There, there are times when it, uh, it changes. And I'm part of both. I'm not, not one or the other. They are equally a part of who I am. So I am a Jew and I'm an American. And they're not in contradiction. They are co-existing at the same moment. I think we have a winning strategy towards living in a multicultural society. 
our approach to being part of the Jewish family, using that language, is very welcoming for people who are part of multiple families and uh, multiple ethnic traditions. I think our approach to a cultural Jewish identity can be comfortable for families who are raising kids exposed to more than one family tradition. Um, and most importantly, our attitude of mazel tov instead of oive uh, is a much more successful model for people who don't have to be Jewish anymore. You don't have to be Jewish anymore. You don't have to have a rabbi do your wedding. You can go to Las Vegas. You can have a friend or on the internet. In many states, you can have friends uh, register as a justice of the peace for the day. California and Massachusetts and other places. So who needs a rabbi anymore? The fact that they've come to us looking for a rabbi is an opening, an opportunity, not uh, a last gasp on their way out the door. At least it doesn't have to be if we respond to it correctly. Uh, a, a humanistic rabbinic colleague of mine told me a story. She met a couple who had gone to 40 rabbis before they found someone who was willing to, I think, co-officiate in a church or something like that, uh, a circumstance she was willing to do. And it, 40 rabbis, I mean, and, and people will, will lambaste them for their lack of commitment to being Jewish. <laughs> and they went to 40 different rabbis to try and find one to be part of the ceremony. I mean, you know, this is a through the looking glass, uh, it seems like an absurd universe. Um, more importantly, our approach to how we identify is one that celebrates the individual. That collective mentality of the Jews coming from Brazil in 1654, we got to buy a cemetery first because of what the community needs and the community experience. That's certainly what we aspire to in the feeling of community, but we know that being Jewish today is a voluntary communal association. Now, Alexis de Tocqueville in the early 1800s wrote a fascinating study of democracy in America under that title, where he said what makes America great are its voluntary associations. And we have to understand that that's what's best about the American Jewish community, is that it is voluntary. We are not confined to a ghetto. We are not segregated by language. We don't only speak Yiddish and don't know English. We're not limited by professions anymore. We're not limited by what schools we can get into. We're not limited by whom we can marry. We are fully a part of the American fabric, and that's an opportunity. It's something to celebrate, accepting the difficulties, but after all, who would want the alternative? In uh, Alan Dershowitz's The Vanishing American Jew, he begins the book by saying, there's an easy solution. He wrote the book in the aftermath of his son marrying someone who wasn't Jewish. He said, there's an easy solution to intermarriage. You build a high wall around your community. You don't teach your kids English. You don't let them watch television. You don't send them to general university. You tell them that everyone outside of their community is stupid and that everyone in their community is a genius. And we could do that, but who, want, who wants to do that? Who would like the Jewish community produced by that? What we have now for all its challenges is better than the alternative. And even good in its own right. That's enough for me. But I'm curious if you have any reactions to, um, I mean some of you have had students who have gone through uh, this curriculum uh, or uh, are contemplating having students going through this. Um, were there anything, any things that I didn't talk about that you think would be important for them to study in looking at the American Jewish story. Going back to the, the Holocaust, how much of that is more a great marketing response to why Jews should be, a, why America supports Israel and, and why there, there's this bond between America and Israel and, and that the elephant in the room is the Holocaust and says, See, this is what happens when when a group of people are oppressed and they don't have some place to go, and that Israel needs to exist. Mm -hmm. And you understand what the Holocaust is, so now you understand why our politics sways in that direction. Well, this is a very dangerous topic. Right. <laughs> There's a book uh, called The Holocaust in American Life by Peter Novick, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, who explored this. Uh, but there's also more inflammatory books on the Holocaust industry and how the Anti-Defamation League uses the Holocaust and threats of the Holocaust to raise money. Um, the theory was that you keep Jews Jewish by telling them you can't escape anyways. Uh, you know, they all hate you, so you might as well stay Jewish. Uh, it's a really inspiring uh, model of identity. Um, <laughs> it's a kind of inoculation against uh, accusations of oppression. Well, how can I be oppressed? We suffer the Holocaust. You know, how can I oppress other people? We suffer the Holocaust. Well, those are two separate issues. <laughs> it's separated by time, too. Um, so it's a, it's a 
challenging dynamic about why the Holocaust became so important in American Jewish life. Uh, some of it may well have been guilt. You know, um, American Jews were dealing with uh, blackouts and rationing and wasn't anywhere near what their co-religionists were dealing with in Europe. And one of the interesting dynamics they found in studying survivors and survivor testimonies, which weren't very popular, by the way, until the 1970s or 80s, um, in the 40s and 50s, generally people didn't talk about the war mm -hmm. and the suffering. And there are a couple of reasons why. One is, you really want to give them all the details, how you were made to stand at attention for three days and dirtied yourself and, and the kind of terrible suffering and powerlessness that you experienced. Who wants to talk about that at dinner? Um, the second issue was that these survivors would show up and people would complain about how bad they had it in the war. All you know, these blackouts and blah, blah, blah. Survivors really, um, and some of it was the kind of hiding the trauma. I'm not ready to talk about it, but some of it was nobody wanted to listen. You, know, you open your mouth and start talking about this, and the people who are complaining about their dentist appointments begin to say, "Well, let's, let's change the subject." <laughs> um, and for some, even there was an odd disconnect. Some of them landed in the South, and they saw benches for whites only, and it reminded them of something that they had seen. Germany, in the Netherlands, and so on. So it wasn't really until the Eichmann trial in the early 1960s, and there's a new book out, by the way, by uh, Deborah Lipstadt, um, who's written <coughs> Holocaust Deniers, about the Eichmann trial. Because the, uh, the Eichmann trial has been sort of overshadowed by Hannah Arendt's reporting of the Eichmann trial uh, in the New York, I think it was New Yorker, um, and ultimately in her book Eichmann in Jerusalem. Uh, so this is a reevaluation of the trial. But the trial was hugely important for raising the specter of the Holocaust, bringing Holocaust survivors on the stand to testify it, made it a, a topic that nobody had really wanted to talk about, uh, into something that people were aware and facing. And in particular, the Six-Day War in 1967, we forget sometimes that in the lead-up to it, there was fear of it being another Holocaust, that uh, Nasser in Egypt was going to mobilize with Assad in Syria and wipe out the Jewish state. It would be another genocide. Uh, and so the fear of that uh, led to a reevaluation of this Holocaust experience. But it wasn't until the late 70s that the uh, TV miniseries Holocaust uh, came out that was, again, very uh, seminal. Uh, Jimmy Carter had a commission to investigate the history of the, the Holocaust um, in the uh, late 70s. Even so, I mean, you did have Holocaust memorial museums going up in uh, Michigan, which was one of the first. It went up in, I think, the late 70s. Uh, there was the, the place in Miami I mentioned and a few other places. Um, so that, that became a, an important part of the American Jewish identity uh, in that time period. Again, is that going to last in the future? It's ancient history. I mean, the, the survivors who are coming to talk to our kids now were hidden children, not in the camps, didn't lose wives and spouses. I mean, it's a different experience. It's certainly serious. But in the end, even those people, you know, if you were, kid, if you were 10 years old in 1942, well, you're almost 80 now. And how long are you going to stick around? In the end, what we'll hear are people telling stories their parents told them. It will be, my, my father went through this, and this is what he did. Uh, that, I think, we'll, we'll continue to hear. But again, it'll be one more step removed, and, uh, and not as vibrant. How different is the program in the, you say, fourth, fifth, and seventh, and eighth? So you're missing the sixth grade, which has its own yes. little spot. Yes. Well, the fourth semester, remember, they're doing A and B curriculum. Right. So uh, one year is on heroes and choices in fourth and fifth grade, and the other year is mm -hmm. on the American Jewish experience primarily focused on immigration, as I recall. Yes. Um, and so they talk about different waves of immigration. Where did your family come from? And actually, this is, again, one of those opportunities where our kids can explore both sides of their heritage. So we do an heirloom museum. And the kids bring in uh, a piece from the family and talk about where did it come from and how did it get here and who owned it and so on. How was it used? And we don't care from which side of the family they take that heirloom. Um, I know uh, um, oh, one of Bill's sons uh, did a, did his piece on a, a Serbian uh, was it the hookah or the rug? I can't remember the, the piece that he did. A Serbian rug. It's from his uh, non-Jewish half of the family. Uh, but it's an important heirloom because, again, for him, the immigrants are his grandparents on the other side. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's a nice way to approach it more uh, welcoming. Uh, so the immigration is more the focus in fourth and fifth grade. 
how did we get here and who are we? And then seventh and eighth grade, when they do that class, it's actually half of the year. They do one year on Holocaust and one year that's half Israel and half American Jewish history. They do a little more survey history. They look at uh, the colonial period. They look at um, during the Civil War, for example, uh, Ulysses Grant issued an order expelling all Jews from Tennessee or Kentucky, one of those states, um, which had to be dealt with. Uh, they, they commissioned the first Jewish chaplains in the army during the Civil War. Um, and then the immigration waves. What? Why did they expel Jews from Tennessee? Oh, because they were parasites. They were uh, they were just they were profiteering on the war, and, uh, and so he, uh, he kicked them out. And then Lincoln rescinded the order um, after some lobbying. But uh, anyways, again, an interesting anecdote uh, in, in American Jewish history, looking at the period of the 1880s, where you both have the uh, the large numbers of uh, Eastern European Jews coming in. Uh, the uh, industrial success of the German Jews, but also their exclusion as anti-Semitism makes its way into um, uh, the upper levels of society. Uh, that's why you had Jewish country clubs and Jewish hospitals, because Jewish doctors couldn't get jobs in general hospitals with law firms and so on. Um, and uh, they talk about the Hollywood experience creating Jewish culture and the American dream, um, and some of the dynamics that we're dealing with today. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.